Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. So let's all take a moment, look around, check on your neighbor, okay? Uh, make sure they're all right, make sure they're, they're, they're awake, because this is probably not the best day for you to fall asleep in church, uh, because we're, we're going to talk about you if you do. So, uh, so today is a day that if, if they're sleeping, just raise your hand, say, Pastor, I got a snoozer right here, <laughs> okay? And then we're going to turn the camera and we're going to show them, okay? Just because this is the day. You've been warned and you've prepared, so if you were up late last night, uh, this clip goes on, it's long, but by the end, he's doing this by the end of the clip, so, uh, so if you need to... Uh, if you need to do that, go ahead, but just to, you've been warned, and so don't think if you're in the balcony that you're safe, because we can see you up there too, so, uh, and I'm just going to warn you, if you fall asleep up there, uh, you're, taking your own, you're taking your own set of risks. Uh, if you've been in church any length of time, then you know how awkward it is either to be the one or perhaps be next to the one who has fallen asleep in the church. It, it always starts when we ask you to sit still too long. Right? I mean, I, people complain we stand too long during the music. Well, there's a reason you stand a, lot, a long time in the music because we just let you sit there because we've got comfortable seats. I mean, I've been in churches where the pews are not comfortable. We've got comfortable pews here, y'all. So, uh, so, I mean, they're good. And so if we let you sit there too long, well, the comfort of that pew will start to work on you a little bit. And so there is a, there is a method behind the madness there. We want to keep you awake. And it usually helps. I don't know about you. I like it to be just a little on the cool side. Some of you fall asleep better if it's a little on the warm side. But uh, if the temperature's just right, you, you know what starts to happen. First, the bob begins. You know what the bob is. It's when the neck loses muscle function. And your, your head is, is heavy, right? And when your neck loses muscle function and that head starts to bob, you know, gravity starts to take over and... and and sometimes the bob is quickly followed by various sounds and snorts that are coming from the mouth area. And it's when that starts to happen that you have officially fallen asleep in church. And so if, if you got a snoring snoozer, we really want to know about that. So, uh, so let us know. Now, I don't want to make light of the situation because there's certainly plenty of people who have varied reasons that church is a good place to catch a nap. Hectic work schedules. Maybe it's the first time all week you've had a chance to maybe sit down and, and catch your breath. Maybe you're a new parent who hadn't slept well for, for quite some time. Um, so I, we understand. It happens. It happens to the best of us. I've been in churches where people on the platform have uh, started to, to bob just a little bit. Um, the best is, like he does in that video, is when they're asleep and they're awakened and then they... Oh, you know, they, they holler or they grunt or, or, or I've heard stories of pastors who, uh, who've had people fall asleep when they wake up. They say, amen, when they wake up. Just, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, all that to say, today is probably not the best day for you to catch a snooze during the sermon. But if you do take any word of caution or admonition from this, if you have a tendency of falling asleep in church, I would advise you to bring it to the floor level, not the balcony, because we cannot be held responsible either for your safety or your immediate resurrection after the fact. <laughs> a wise man once said, boy, this is true, the mind can absorb no more than the seat. 
With that being said, it's probably wise for us to go ahead and get started this morning and jump into this remarkable text from Acts chapter 20. If you've got your place in God's Word, let's go ahead and stand and get on our feet for just a minute. While I read these words here from Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. I'm already tired. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep, deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. He was overcome by sleep, and when he was, he fell down from the third-story window, and he was taken up dead. But Paul went down, bent over him, taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. Father, I thank you for this story. I thank you for Eutychus, Lord the first guy to fall asleep. But God, thank you for uh, Paul being there and you using Paul to raise this young man from the dead. God, I pray that you will help us to, to stay awake, not just physically, but Lord, spiritually as well. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. Just to catch us up to where we are after taking a week off from Acts, in the big story of our text, Paul is now visiting some of the cities that we actually know through his letters. He spent time in Corinth. He has spent time in Ephesus. In Ephesus, God used Paul for, for this, in, to do some incredible works that, that Paul accomplished there in Ephesus. And we know that Paul was, had, was receiving an offering that he was going to take back to Jerusalem for the church there because the church in Jerusalem was, was struggling. And so these mission churches were able to contribute to the mother church. However, Paul's enemies have taken on a more aggressive approach. Instead of just responding to him when he showed up in a town, it actually appears that they were actively plotting against him. And so this limited his ability to stay for any length of time. He'd show up in a community and his enemies would find out. But what we see happening is that the gospel's done its work. This is what happens when gospel-preaching churches are planted. People get saved, churches spring up, and there's a need to make disciples. There's a need for Paul to come and speak life into these new churches. And so we find Paul making these stops to spend time encouraging and strengthening these local churches. In the text here in Ephesians chapter, or in Acts chapter 20, we find that, that Paul is actually in the town of Troas. You say, well, have we heard that before? Is that familiar to us? Well, we've actually been there before. Over in Acts chapter 16, if you remember when Paul received the call to Macedonia, this is where he's at. Little seaside town, little port town, that's where he's at when he receives the call to go into Europe. Again, Luke doesn't give us a ton of details. I mean, he is a thorough scholar, but he doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't cover everything. He doesn't have time to cover everything. But it's apparently a lot more goes on in Troas than we know about. It's more than just a couple of nights in a hotel before he gets on a boat. Acts chapter 20 reports to us that there's actually a community of believers there in that port city, Troas. And what we see happening is the gospel is working. People are getting saved. There's a church that's growing. So Paul only had a week to spend in Troas before moving on. And so he wanted to make the most of his time. There's a foundational biblical principle at work there. How many of us know how much time we've got? Anybody got a sense? You can check your pulse, maybe, you know, you get an idea. How much time do we have? We don't know. 
We don't know how much time that we have, so we need to make the most of the time that we do have. Psalm 90, verse 12 says, Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. We don't know how much time we've got left. We don't know how much time we've got to spend. And so the time we do have, we want to be good stewards of that time and make the most of that time. And so Paul has just a week here in Troas. And so he wants to make the most of it. And that joker preached. Like, he, he, put, he put the long in long-winded, we find out here. And so he took it seriously. They're meeting on a Sunday. They're meeting in a house that had at least three floors, we're told there. And there's a crowd in this room. It wasn't a COVID-friendly room, we know. You imagine, okay, let me set the stage. We've got a three-story home. Y'all have been upstairs in a house that the air conditioner's out. All that heat sort of rises up through the house. Well, their air conditioner was out. They didn't have any air conditioner, okay? So they're on the third story in this upper room. It's probably hot and muggy. They're on the Mediterranean there, and, uh, you know, it's not a cool place. It's not a cool climate. Luke even makes a point. He says there were many lamps in the room. Now, just so you're aware, they weren't burning cool LED lighting in the upper room there. When he says there were a lot of lamps in the room, he's talking about oil lamps. And those oil lamps, in order for them to give off light, have what attached to them? Fire. Okay? So there is fire burning. A lot of lamps in a crowded room. There is open flame in the third story of a house with no air conditioning. And there's a lot of people there. You've ever been in a candlelight service? You know that as soon as the candles are lit, and it may just be psychosomatic, but it feels like the temperature starts to rise in the room when all those candles get lit. So here's this group of people with no deodorant, by the way, (laughs) in a crowded third-story room after dark with lots of oil lamps burning. I'm getting anxious thinking about this setting. Because again, y'all, I don't know if I'm officially claustrophobic, but my heart is racing thinking about being in this hot room with poor ventilation with a whole bunch of my closest friends. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm uncomfortable just talking about it. Y'all, I'll get off an elevator if it's got too many people on it, okay? Like, I will, I will, excuse me, this is my stop. Last week, we got on an elevator. I was on there by myself. I needed to go from the third floor to the 17th floor. And I got on there by myself, and I thought, oh, this is going to be a great ride. At the fifth floor, it stopped, and a bunch of folks got on. And I mean a bunch. And I said, okay, I can do this. But I start doing mental math. I start weighing everybody in in the elevator. And I start looking at that placard above the buttons that says what the maximum is. And I'm thinking, okay, we, we got to, you know, we're getting close, but we're all right. Uh, and so all these people got on. I'm doing the mental math of what the weight limit is and how much these folks weigh. They've been eating at a buffet all week, so I know they're probably a little heavier than what I think. I didn't bail. We got one floor, and somebody else tried to get on. And I said, you can take my spot. And I got off and I hit the stairs. 
because it was, it was more than I could handle. So I, me and Eutychus, he is, my, he is my brother in suffering right here. I'm getting Eutychus. If I'm in that room, crowded, full of hot, sweaty, nasty people on the third floor with all the heat rising, it's full of burning oil lamps, I'm in there, I am looking for the only source of fresh air that is available, and there is a window. And so y'all want to get close to the Apostle Paul, I'm going to get over here by the window. And so Eutychus manages to find that sacred place right there on the windowsill. He found the only fresh air that was coming into the room, and he was taking in as much of it as he could. But, you know, he wanted to hear Paul because the apostle Paul is preaching, right? I mean, you want to hear that. If, if Billy Graham came back from the dead and stood at the pulpit, you don't care how full the room is, you'd want to hear what Billy Graham has to say. You'd stand out in the foyer, you'd stand on the sidewalk, you would want to be close to hear what Billy Graham has to say. People wanted to hear what Paul said. They wanted to benefit from his instruction. So Eutychus wasn't a terrible Christian. He just wanted to hear what Paul had to say. He wanted to benefit from that instruction. So Paul spoke. And Paul spoke. And Paul spoke. Midnight rolled around. And Paul still had more to say. Maybe Eutychus by this time is like, you know, in the video, holding his eyeballs open. But between the fresh air of the night and the Apostle Paul's lengthy sermon, the young man succumbed to the heaviness of his eyelids. And in doing so, we're told that he fell from his perch on the windowsill and landed on the ground below undoubtedly suffering some sort of catastrophic neck injury or head injury. There was no doubt that he was dead. After all, Luke was a doctor. If anybody could pronounce him, Luke. And Luke was there. He said, he said we. There were lots of, of lamps where we were. So Luke's able to pronounce this man. He knows he's dead. There's no question there. However, Paul rushes down. He takes Eutychus in his arms. And I love that Paul doesn't do any kind of Benny Hinn-style miracle, slap him on the forehead, be healed, and walk. He just puts his arms around him and says, his life's still in him. And through the power of God, funneling through the Apostle Paul, Eutychus is raised from the dead. Man, that story told. You know people told that story, right? I mean, you know people were, were, were sharing that. What do you do? after experiencing such an event, right? Paul's teaching, you're in a crowded room, man falls and dies, he's now resurrected. Man, you go, you go out for pancakes or something, right? The Waffle House is open, I mean, you go celebrate this. What'd they do? They went back to that crowded upper room and Paul kept preaching for another five, six hours. Kept preaching, kept preaching. And everybody was encouraged, and everybody was, was, was challenged. They share communion. They break bread together. And then Paul taught some more. I don't know all the details of that night there in Troas, but it's, it's probably a pretty good bet that, one, I bet nobody else fell asleep that night. <laughs> I guarantee you nobody else fell asleep that night. And I bet nobody else sat in the windows there in the upper room either that night at Troas. It's a powerful story, but I think there's two ways to look at it today. And I want to look at both those ways <clears throat> from different perspective. 
The first way I want to look at this is just from a very literal approach to the text. As we get ready for Easter, the resurrection day that we celebrate this every, every, time, every year this time, the story of Eutychus is a very powerful, very clear reminder that God has the ultimate power over death. Now, we don't know why God allowed Eutychus to be raised from the dead, right? Uh, I mean, we don't know um, because there were some men that were, were raised from the dead, but then there were some that weren't. You think like Stephen when he was martyred. I mean, of all the people that, why was Stephen not resurrected? I mean, why didn't they go in there after Stephen was stoned? Why didn't somebody go in there and, and lay their hands on Stephen's body and say, hey, his life's still in him, and then Stephen could live to preach some more? Why didn't Stephen raise from the dead? But this, this young man, Eutychus, did. We don't know anything special about it. In fact, he's never mentioned again. We don't know that he becomes a great preacher. Or a, you know, we don't know anything about him. But for reasons known only to God, Eutychus was spared. But understand this. In the history of our faith, there have been very few people who have been risen from the dead, right? I mean, we open our Bibles and it's a pretty, it's a pretty small club. I mean, we think of Lazarus, we think of like Jairus' daughter, we think of Eutychus. I mean, it's a real narrow, it's a real small club of people who've been resurrected. Um, it is true that that is a very small group of people, and it is true that it is the virtually universal experience of humanity that everybody's going to do what? Die and pay taxes. Don't forget it's coming up, right? Two inevitabilities, death and taxes. Those are it. And so the universal experience of, of humanity is that people die. But Eutychus is a reminder to each and every one of us that God has the final and ultimate say when it comes to death. A few weeks ago, I was over in the church cemetery, and I was having a conversation with a couple of the guys who dig graves. Yeah, that's a pastor statement if there ever was one, right? What'd you, who'd you talk to today? I talked to grave diggers today. And I was talking to these grave diggers, and, and I, I was just trying to make small talk with them. And one of the guys was talking about that what they do for a living, that what they put in the ground doesn't count. Because what's important has gone on to be with the Lord. And I said, you know what? I said, I want to challenge you on that a little bit. He said, what, are you saying that, that what we do with the body matters? Well, I think it absolutely matters. Because we're Christians, right? We believe that when that body's finished, it's not to be discarded and, and, and never thought of again. Because what's going to happen one day to that body? It'll be resurrected. We believe that. That is, our, that is our blessed hope as Christians. I mean, the cemeteries are going to be hopping on Resurrection Day when the bodies are brought forth from the grave and they're reunited with the souls who've gone on to be with the Lord. And so the body matters. The body is important. The body will be with us one day. Now, it's not going to be like they were. It's not going to be riddled with all the problems that they're riddled with now. It's certainly not going to be dead. It's going to be a perfect resurrection body. Paul says that Jesus has already shown us what that resurrection bodies look like. But God has shown us in Christ the nature of that body. We know that in Christ we will all experience the glory of the resurrected body. 
Revelation chapter 1, verse 17 and 18, Jesus said this. He says, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. If you're concerned about death, don't be worried about death if you're in Christ because Jesus has the keys. He's got authority. He's in charge. He's in control of it. You don't have anything to worry about if you're in Christ when it comes to death. Paul reminds us as well in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory, O death. Where is your victory, O death? Where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death is certainly a great unknown to us. But one thing we do understand is that while it may be unknown to us and it may be shrouded in much mystery, it is something that our Lord understands completely and he understands it even to the point of experiencing it on our behalf. If you're ever worried about death, don't be worried about death. Jesus already did it for you. He already took the penalty. He already paid the price. He already did it for you and he rose again for you as well. He's already gone before us in that pathway so that if you are in Christ, you have nothing to fear because that enemy has been defeated in Jesus. Amen? There's a second approach, though. First is more literal. The second is more allegorical. And it begins with just a simple question. You may be awake this morning. Everybody still awake, by the way? Okay. Any sleepers? No snoozers? Okay. Um, That's a shame. Um, you may be awake this morning, but have you actually fallen asleep in church? Not historically, like I did last week, because, man, that youth pastor, buddy. (laughs) You just can't help but wonder how many people are sitting in churches today, their body is present, but their souls are fast asleep. You know, there's really three types of people who sleep in church. The first type are those who've never been awake. Some of you have been in this room a long time, but you've been fast asleep your whole life. In some sense, you might say you've even been sleepwalking. You've gone through the motions, but it's really never meant more to you than a bunch of religious activity. Y'all ever, anybody got kids that sleepwalk? We got one. And he's, he fever walks. So, so when he's sick and he's got a fever and he goes to bed and, and, you know, your parents, you give him that ibuprofen before bed or that Tylenol and, and, man, that fever breaks. Well, we know when my kid is no longer has a fever because that's when he starts to roam. And it's always entertaining. Uh, it's never happened in a way that I could have recorded it because I think that's something that I could use against him later in life. Uh, but it is always an, it is always an adventure. Thankfully, we've never had the stories of peeing in the closet or anything like that. I mean, we've not had those sort of things. But it's always these vibrant interactions that are completely out of context and never make sense. Um, If you've ever been around that person, then then you know. And you know one thing about sleepwalkers is that they do appear normal. They got a look, though, kind of got crazy eyes going on. But they got that look. They look normal, but you know that there's still something kind of missing. Here's the reality, folks. There's a lot of people who look normal. They spent their lives going to church, singing the songs, hanging out with Christians, but who were going to miss the mark because they're still asleep and they never woke up. 
Maybe you're one of these people. You derive comfort from being around Christian people. Maybe the biblical worldview bolsters your political opinion. But if you're honest, deep down inside right now, you know you're missing something. And I would tell you that something you're missing is Jesus. It might be startling to you today to think about it like that. But what happens when you wake a sleepwalker? Sleepwalkers are never awakened calm and collected and cool and rational. They never say, oh, I must have been sleepwalking. Let me go back to bed. You wake a sleepwalker up and they're, they're startled. What am I doing? How did I get here? What's happened in my life to bring me to this point? It's a startling reality. But in their delirium, they thought they had everything under control. But really, that sleepwalker was just under the impulses of their subconscious. You wake a sleepwalker, they're startled, but ultimately you know it's for their own good because sleepwalking is not a safe activity. They say, don't ever wake a sleepwalker. Well, I'm going to wake you up because I don't want you leaving my house or falling down the stairs or something like that. I'm going to wake you up and send you back to bed because it's for your best. If you are in that condition of still being asleep, you need to be awakened today to the power of Jesus in your life. A second reason people sleep in church is because they're living in a compromised state. Now, we in the South, we call that backslidden, right? You know what backslidden means. That means that, that you were here and then you slid back. And the Bible calls that besetting sin, uh, that sort of sin that, that, that controls you. You might think that you're controlling it, but ultimately it's controlling you. We've all been there, but some of us may be there now. On the outside, everything looks fine. On the inside, you're really not concerned all that much about the things of God. I think it's somebody like Samson. Samson's one of those great examples of somebody who started strong, but over the course of time let sin into his life, and that sin began to lull him into a spiritual slumber. Started off strong. You might even say he ended well, but that middle part, well, sin got the best of him. He literally fell asleep. While he was sleeping in Delilah's lap, she cut his hair. Judges chapter 16, verse 20 says, And Delilah said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. That's the problem with besetting sin. It desensitizes us. It causes us to presume upon the grace of God. So if you find the joy of your salvation has been diminished, it might just be that you've allowed sin to lull you into a very dangerous nap. There's a third group that sleep in church. Those who are bored. There's an old maxim, familiarity breeds contempt. The idea actually traces its back all the way to the 1300s with Geoffrey Chaucer. We use the phrase as an excuse for many things, right? I mean, I've, I hear couples talk about going when they go through a divorce. They lean on this idea as a way to justify their split, as I've got to know the person, I just don't love them like I used to. We think that as we grow comfortable with a relationship, that that relationship works itself out over time, and we grow so familiar with the object of that relationship that we simply grow bored with that relationship. Let me say this. Jesus is a lot of things, but Jesus is not boring. 
Jesus may be a lot of things, but Jesus is certainly not boring. And I would offer a caution to each and every single one of us here. Jesus may not be boring, but we can't always say the same thing about church or about his people. What are some ways that we make church boring, particularly to the next generation? Because we're losing the next generation, right? I mean, statistics tell us when they turn 20, if they get that far, they're gone. Look around the room. It's not hard to see. We lose them. How do we make church boring? We make church boring when we teach Bible content without offering meaningful application or apologetics. We don't teach them... We don't teach them how to think, we teach them what to think. And by not teaching them how to think about the Bible, we actually are endangering them when they become adults. When we teach and preach, we ought to be looking for the so what of the text. Why does it matter? We make church boring when we treat worship as a show to be watched rather than an action in which we participate. Where do kids learn to worship? Well, we send them to children's church, and Miss Samantha takes them upstairs, and Miss Samantha teaches them how to worship. That's where children learn how to worship. If that's your thoughts, I would push back on you some, because children learn how to worship by watching you, not by watching Miss Samantha. Children learn how to worship by singing the songs of the faith, not the kids' songs that they sing in children's worship. That's where children learn how to worship. I'm not saying that there's not a place for children's worship, but I am saying that there is a place for children in worship. I can't tell you what a blessing it was today to see those three young ladies in that choir. And y'all might have been listening to the special. I was watching those three young ladies sing when we were doing just congregational worship because they were singing and they were smiling. Did you tell them to smile? Good. I'm glad. They just smiled on their own. They were happy to be in, the, in, in that place leading in worship. If you didn't watch those three little girls singing, you're walking away today less, worse off than you would have been if you'd watched those three little girls leading in worship today. Okay? Children learn to worship by watching their parents worship. And men, men don't ever forget this, Paul gave very clear instructions that he wants men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer. That's a biblical word. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, Paul said, I desire then that in every place men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. That is a position of worship that Paul says is appropriate for a man of God. That, that's, how, that's how Paul says it's okay to worship. That's not Pentecostal or charismatic. It's biblical for people to raise their hands. That's how Paul says is appropriate for us. Too many of us have this posture during worship. Instead of lifting holy hands in prayer, we cross agitated arms in indifference. And let's just call a spade a spade here. Men, I'm going to pick on you. And women, this is you too, if you, if you know what I'm talking about. How can it be that we can watch our favorite team on the television and we lose our ever-loving minds on something that has ultimately zero consequences on our eternal outcomes. Hey, y'all, who won the national championship last week, Kansas or, or whoever it was? <laughs> it ain't going to send you to heaven. 
It might keep you out of it, but it ain't going to send you to heaven. And y'all bunch of Georgia Bulldogs, I know you're excited. You're still barking after, Lord have mercy, how many months has it been? It ain't going to get you to heaven. It ain't going to get you to heaven. Listen, I, I will cheer with the, biggest, with, the, with the best of them. But it has got to be a, it's got to hurt the Lord's heart to watch his people lose their minds on televised sports and come to church with God's people. We will wear our team's colors every single day. We were on vacation last week. A man I didn't know walked past another man that I didn't know. And the first man that I didn't know had on something that had something crimson on it. And the other man that I didn't know looked at that man that he didn't know that I didn't know either of them. And he looked at that man that I didn't know and he said, Roll Tide! And the man looked back at him and said, Roll Tide! I was like, they're communicating with each other. I've never heard anybody, whoa, listen, I've never heard anybody outside of this room look at a stranger and say, Christ is risen to the reply, he is risen indeed. I'm not wrong. So what are we communicating to the next generation? We are regularly communicating that sports are exciting and fresh and relevant. And we regularly allow our affinity for sports that we never once played to control things as essential to us as our style choices and our interactions with perfect strangers. I'm not suggesting that there's anything wrong with having an affinity for teams and sports. I am not suggesting that it's appropriate for you to come dump Gatorade over the pastor when he completes a dunk in the baptistry. But I am telling you this, Jesus, if you're a Christian, has had a bigger impact in your life than Nick Saban or Kirby Smart ever will. And if you think for a second that go dogs or go gators or Roll Tide, or War Eagle, Go Tigers, whatever Auburn fans are, is a greater and more pertinent word than he is risen, then you have a problem. So our kids see mom and dad lose their ever-loving minds in front of a television screen but they treat the things of God as if they can't wait to move on to something more important. It shouldn't surprise us when our kids get bored in church. And while I'm at it, 
when we prioritize everything else at the expense of gathering with God's people, then we will guarantee boredom. Church is fine, as long as there's nothing else going on. Hear my heart in this. I'm not for suggesting for a second that you should yell and scream at church like you yell and scream at a ball game. There's a place for reverence. There's a place for, for that sort of decorum. But our kids are learning by watching. And if you find that they're bored in church, it might just be because you've allowed yourself to get bored with Jesus. And some of you have been in church your whole life. C.S. Lewis said once, none are so unholy as those whose hands are cauterized by holy things. Quoting an ancient hymn, the Apostle Paul challenged the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14. It says, Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Some of us need to hear this today. Arise, O sleeper. If you got somebody sleeping next to you in church, nudge them and say, Arise, O sleeper. You have my permission to shout it out loud. Arise, O sleeper. Maybe you're asleep in church today and you've never really been awake. Maybe you're asleep in church today because you've allowed besetting sin to find a home in your heart. Maybe you're asleep in church today because you've just gotten bored with the things of God. Arise, O sleeper. But I don't want to end with that. This is the week leading up to Resurrection Day. And the Bible tells us over and over again that that news ought to encourage us. And so I want to make sure that we're encouraged with that good news. And if you hadn't heard it, if nobody's told you yet today, Jesus Christ is alive. He is alive. He has conquered hell and death. And if you're in Christ, you don't have to fear death. You don't have to fear it because it's been conquered. If you've got loved ones who've gone to sleep in the Lord, you don't have to worry about them because they're better off than you are. And one day, they're going to rise again. And they're going to be with Jesus. And if you're in Christ, you're going to be with Jesus too. So I encourage you with that. That's good news. That's a good word for us. And it, it's the most exciting thing that we can talk about this week. It's more exciting than basketball. I know opening day with, for baseball was last week. I know all those things. But Jesus Christ, the risen Savior, is more exciting than any of those things. And you take that to the bank. Would you pray with me, please? I thank you for your word, for your for the good news of Jesus. Thank you for Eutychus, the first man to fall asleep in church. Definitely not the last. He's in good company. But I think he tells a bigger story. He tells us the story of the fact that you have control and reign and rule over death. But he reminds us so powerfully of what it means to fall asleep. And so may we heed what Paul sung in the book of Ephesians, Arise, O sleeper. And so, Lord, if we find ourselves sleeping today because we've never been awake, may we meet Jesus today, the risen Savior. May we find him taking our sins from us and saving us today. Maybe we've got besetting sin in our life that we've allowed us to lull us into a slumber. And today we need to repent. Or maybe we're just bored. And God, if we've gotten bored with the best news ever, 
then I pray you would grab hold, shake us awake today with that good news that Jesus is alive. Jesus conquered death. Jesus is ready and willing to save. Jesus wants to be in a relationship with us. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.